From a totally different perspective? Ready for provocative conversation? Intriguing stories and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca. What if you took the time to really soak it? Hello, everybody. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. That's talkwithfrancesca.com. For questions or comments, don't hesitate to weigh in by emailing me at info at talkwithfrancesca.com. I'll repeat that email, info at talkwithfrancesca.com. Or if you have a show suggestion, you can also feel free to email me. All right, we're going to get started. This portion of Talk with Francesca is sponsored by Sunburst Trading in Raleigh. Have some beautiful, beautiful stuff there. Looking for a gift, it's the place to go. All right, then. Don't look now, but the person across from you is a liar. So is the barista who just served you coffee. And so are you. We're all liars. In fact, studies have shown that we're regularly told anywhere from 10 to a whopping 200 lies each day. That's up to 12 an hour. Holy smoly. From white lies to whoppers, more than three quarters of these go undetected, and the clues to detect those lies can be subtle and counterintuitive. Excuse me. Pamela Mayer. Did I say that right, Pam? Is it Mayer or Meyer? It's Meyer. Meyer. I'm sorry. No problem. Author of Lies Spotting is going to share with us this morning the manners and hotspots used by those trained to recognize deception. I cannot talk this morning. She says we're facing a pandemic of deception, but fortunately she's arming people with tools to find the truth, and she's here with us now on Talk with Francesca. So welcome, Pam. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here, and that is the truth. I hope when I sent you that email yesterday and said about the book, are you telling me the truth? <laughs> you knew <laughs> no I was problem. kidding. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> but anyway, okay. Um, first, because you have so much of a background, I, I felt that rather than me say what your background is, I would like you to give our listening audience a little bit about your background and why you study lying. Well, you know, I was in the media business for a long time. I had um, many years in the film business. Then I worked for National Geographic as a film acquisitions executive. Then went into the Internet, raised some money for an Internet venture. We started a bunch of social networks. We sold them. And I was looking for kind of the next thing. And I have an MBA um, as well as a degree in public policy. And I was trying to think of something that would make a difference in the world and as well be very personal and interesting because I got a little bit tired of the digital world. Mm-hmm. And I happened to be at my business school reunion, and a professor started talking. You know, he's giving a workshop to the alumni, and he started talking about what happens in their studies when someone's being deceptive. And he started talking about how, you know, people will take a – barrier object like a purse or an iPad or a backpack and place it between themselves and the person that's interviewing them. People will point their feet towards the exit or lean towards the exit or shift their posture down. And this group of very esteemed Harvard Business School graduates for whom really nothing is ever new, they're always on their Blackberries at that time, calling the private jet, you know, planning golf at the country club, getting a board meeting in, all of a sudden everybody's looking up. Everyone was paying attention. And I realized that this material, which is very well funded, there's a lot of research on deception detection in the intelligence world and law enforcement and academia, this material was new to the business world and to the popular world. 
So I made it my business to train in that area and to do a full survey of all the research in the area and really to write a book and develop a training system for how to tell if someone's being deceptive. So did you have a personal interest in this as well? No, was I it, did. I mean, was there, I you know, not, not to get too personal, but was there, you know, someone maybe in your life that it really, that it, that you, or had you been deceived? Was there something that, that sort of prompted this, this curiosity? This well, you know, I had two experiences that were really interesting. And one was a big experience. One was just a momentary one. The, the big one was I had an assistant for many years who I adored, who was really smart and really talented. And she ended up uh, embezzling a lot of money out of my company and lying about it and forging checks and doing all kinds of things that one shouldn't do. Um, even went to crunch um, the health club and posed as me, um, took a bunch of computers. And unraveling that was very interesting because I had enormous amount of trust and really loved her and she was very smart and talented. And it was a big betrayal. And mm. that was kind of the big piece. The little piece is that just randomly one day I was hiring somebody for a small temporary job, and she came breathlessly into the office and said, I need $5, I need $5, my purse was stolen, or I dropped my purse in Central Park, I, my office was in New York at the time. I can't remember exactly what she said, but we all felt very concerned about her. She was sweating and late for the interview, so we all came forth and gave her $5. And she did the job fairly well, and nobody really connected with her. We didn't think much of it. And then I got a phone call after she left, from her sister, who said, you know, we're doing an intervention. She's a pathological liar. Nothing on her resume is true. She lies all the time. She's going into a program for pathological lying, and we'd like you to participate in the intervention, which I didn't do because I didn't really know her well enough, but I thought it was fascinating. And I had been duped by her just momentarily, but, and all of us had in my office. So it's kind of a small experience and then a big experience, and then just this incredible discovery of all this very, very well-funded research and the real science of both deception but also getting to the truth. It's very scary just, just listening to it. I mean, I just, I mean, I consider myself a fairly uh, trusting person, um, you know, and, and it's just, I mean, so what do, you, what do you look for? I mean, when you start talking about, uh, you know, it, it seems unimaginable that we can be lied to up to 200 times a day. You know, I mean, that's that sounds almost two hundred. I mean, that, well, you know, that's, that's, I don't even know studies. how many how many how many lies is that in a minute. I don't. Well, even know. look, I mean, we hear about ten big lies a day, and some people say up to two hundred. There are many, many studies, and they all have different numbers. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting, and the more this is the deeper truth underneath that, that's interesting, is that in one of the landmark studies that Robert Feldman at University of Massachusetts did. What he found that was so interesting is not that people lied, because we all know people lie, and probably with higher frequency than we expect. And also, by the way, a lot of these are white lies for social dignity, and we're less concerned about those. But what he found is that... So you're you know, saying had, white lying is okay. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Well, it's a slippery slope. You yeah. have to be careful, particularly if someone's a pathological white liar. But for the most part, when you say, like, honey, you don't look fat in that in the morning, which, of course, we all do, <laughs> that, that's <We> okay. <laughs> you mean we all say that or we all look fat? Right. <laughs> Both. <yeah>. So... <laughs> so um, it's a good way to start the day, though. You want to start the day with a punch. Yeah, you look the, real fat. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, but what you know, what he found that was so interesting is that you know, had people talk to each other. What did you do? Where did you go to school? Oh yeah, I used to work at Time Life Books. And they found connections and they started, you know, chatting. And then he asked them, "How many times did you lie?" And then they, you know, and then when they listened to the audio and saw a video and actually heard what they said, what they realized is they'd severely underestimated it. So you know, it is really a steady stream of unconscious untruths that we emit and we're not really aware of how much we do it and part of what i really have made my you know you know part of my mantra when i go out there and i talk to people and i train and i i speak at conferences and so forth i really want people to realize that it starts with self-deception and it starts with self-awareness and so yes we're lied to a lot but that's not really the interesting piece. The interesting piece is that we don't know ourselves well enough to know when we're doing it and how often we do it. And we really have to start. If we want to raise the moral bar in the world, we really have to start with ourselves. So how do we do that? Well, first you need to ask for a lot of feedback from other people because they will tell you things if you ask. Like? And you have to listen with a, you know, listen in with a tough skin. Um, and second of all, you have to really self-monitor and really think about and make a, make a conscious effort when someone's asking you a question to be honest and to trust that if you're authentic and if you're honest that somebody will actually have a deeper connection to you and we're very forgiving people you know you, you know as i always say to my daughter i have an 8 year old you're much better off if you tell me the truth you know i, I, I there's nothing there's nothing you can't tell me i will still love you but you got to tell the truth so so practically speaking how do you know when someone's lying well, there are lots of ways to know. And first of all, it's not a parlor trick, and it's not an exact science. So the first thing to know is that what you're looking for are clusters of verbal and nonverbal indicators of deceit. It's really about leakage. So, you know, when you're trying to think what to say, act composed, appear spontaneous, you actually leak verbal and nonverbal indicators of deceit. And that cognitive load, when it's high, is when that leakage comes out. And so when you are trying to tell if someone's lying, you can very subtly ask harder and harder questions, start with very open-ended questions, but funnel it down to the more, you know, drill down more and more to more specific and harder questions, and you will raise the cognitive load, and you will start to see that leakage. That said, we always start with baselining. You, you need to get a reliable reference point for measuring changes later. You know, how are you? How was your weekend? What did you do? Did you go shopping? Get a sense of someone's norm. Because if, if you ask them a hard question, they start tapping their foot, and they're always, they've always been tapping their foot, and they're a foot tapper, it means absolutely nothing. Right. So you, want, you don't want to get a false positive. You have to be very scientific about it. And so you always start by baselining and getting a norm. And that looking and that listening is really a very very important skill to develop before you even get into whether or not someone is lying because that's about getting into curiosity mode that's about getting yourself out of the way that's about really connecting with another person and so even if it's not about detecting deception if you get into that looking and listening mode and you pay really close attention you're gonna have better relationships anyway because people will really recognize that you're interested in them when someone says to be honest like in, re in response to a direct question is that a telltale sign that they're lying Oftentimes it is. We call that qualifying language. You know, to tell you the truth, to be honest. Last I thought about this, when you hear someone equivocating and qualifying their language, oftentimes they're stalling for time, and they're going to come forth with not exactly the entire truth. Is that 
is that definitive? I mean, is that or is could that possibly be just the way someone communicates? It might be their it might be their norm. We all have signature phrases. Like right. my husband always says, "May I tell you something?" Before he's going to tell me something very <laughs> important and not particularly nice. So you know, we all we all know each other well enough to know what our little signature phrases are. And if someone always says, "To be honest," doesn't mean anything. But if they well, are sparse with their words. But if you come from a dysfunctional family might. and you always say, well, because of so many liars, you say, well, let me tell you the truth about this. <laughs> it's, it's an arms race at our house. <laughs> it's an arms race. My husband said he's writing a book called Lie Spotting, Counterintelligence. <laughs> <laughs> if you're just tuning in this morning, you're listening to Talk with Francesca, and I'm speaking with... Pam Meyer, and we she has written a book called Lie Spotting, and we're talking about lying. Uh, Pam, how do you uh, spot a fake smile? Well, you know... Or is there such a thing? There very much is such a thing. You have to be careful. If someone's smiling, sometimes it doesn't necessarily mean it's fake or that they're lying. But we call this duping delight. It's kind of the unconscious delight at getting away with a whopper. And you see this all the time. It starts very, very early. A fake smile in a mature adult, you know, the real smiles in the eyes, the crow's feet around the upper corners of the eyes cannot be consciously contracted in about 80% of us. Uh-huh. So when you see Unless it just contracted in the cheek muscles, that's really not a real smile. Does Botox screw up smiles? Yeah, don't get the Botox. <laughs> Never get Botox. Nobody's ever going to think you're honest. <laughs> Well, supposedly it it freezes your face, doesn't it? Exactly. Okay, anyway. Okay, continue. I apologize for interrupting, but it just made me think of that. Like, oh, what about all the people who get Botox for their looks and Botox for headaches? And right, it's not, You're not going to have a true expression on your face. Well, you know, you actually bring up an important point because sometimes stress has nothing to do with the question you asked. It has to do with that headache or it has to do with something bad that happened to somebody that morning. And so... When we do training, one of the first things we always say is that the lie really doesn't mean anything unless you can get to the truth. Knowing that somebody has lied is really a meaningless point of data unless you're going to go the distance and ask them the hard questions and really try to get to the meat of it. Because if you don't, then you just become kind of the finger pointer saying liar, liar, pants on fire. And that's not useful to anybody. So give us an example. An example of some questions that you can ask? Yeah. So if you suspect that somebody's being dishonest and you've, let's say, you've baselined them, you know what their norm is, you've asked them some open-ended questions at first, you really want to get someone talking. So you don't say, what happened on February 5th in the back parking lot? You want to say, hey, what happened that night? And just let them start talking. So you ask open-ended, not closed questions. Then you're going to look for verbal and nonverbal indicators of deceit. So you might, we can talk about that in a few minutes, but you might see some statements that are deceptive or see some of the nonverbal or body language cues. If you start to sense that they're being deceptive, you then want to start asking them some questions that will get them talking, particularly if they're a little bit passive-aggressive. Oftentimes you have someone who is feeling very threatened and they have rapport with you, but in fact they're a very resistant subject, as we say. They're, so you have to ask certain questions that will get them talking. So you might want to say to them, what's the pettiest thing that's bothering you right now about what happened? And by doing that, you're actually giving them permission. You're saying, hey, I'm not going to judge you. What's the pettiest thing that bothered you about that deal? What's the pettiest thing that's bothering you about this investigation? What's the pettiest thing that bothered you about that computer being stolen out of the back office? They're going to tell you something not particularly petty. 
because you're saying anything that you want to tell me is okay. I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to pursue facts and not people. And if you really believe that, which I do, you should not pursue people. It doesn't matter. You really want to just be a fact collector, figure out what the truth is, and move on with the consequences. People will start to talk to you. You also, there are many confirming questions and techniques. Like, so, for example, you can say to someone, what should happen to whoever forged those checks or whoever's found guilty of you know, exfiltrating data out of the company or you know, whoever did sleep with your boyfriend? What should happen? And the guilty response is always, well, I don't know. It's not my job to say. I don't really know. The truthful person will always recommend strict punishment. Kick them out of the company, fire them, break up with them. The truthful person is much more likely to recommend that. Dishonest person will look down, slump, lower than their lower their chair, lower lower themselves in their chair, change their breathing pattern, and they'll be less likely to point that finger. Oh, I love that. The truthful person. I'm also, honest. <laughs> I've just realized I'm honest. <laughs> I just started to think of something, and I went, "Yes." <laughs> the other thing you want to look for is really subtle shifts in attitude. You know, um, you know, we, uh, Phil Houston, one of the great deception detectors in the world, calls this uh, "convince mode." But what, what you want to look for is that subtle shift when someone shifts from providing you with information and kind of speculative cooperation with you on what may have happened to all of a sudden trying to convince you of their, of their truthfulness and trying to persuade you in some way. And when you see that convince mode, it can be a sign that they're admitting something or you haven't really gotten to the truth in some way. And you also want to ask somebody, I and mean, you know this from watching uh, Law and & Order and other um, crime shows, but you want to ask them to tell their story many times at, in different ways and kind of backwards. You know, uh, when the cognitive load is really high and someone's lying, they, can't, they can only give you a chronology in forward order. If you ask them to tell their story in backward chronological order, they usually can't do it. Mm-hmm. So you want to do that subtly. And, you know, if you say to someone, you know, how do you think this investigation is going to come out? Or how do you think, if a teacher says to the kids, how do you think this is going to get resolved? The truthful person is more likely to be positive in their forecast. And the guilty person is usually going to say, you know, I hope it's going to clear me. It should clear me. You know, this is going to come out great. I'm so glad you're going to catch that guy. Oh, I love this. This is so interesting. If you're just tuning in this morning, you're listening to Talk with Francesca. Pam, we are going to take a very short break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about Facebook. So stay tuned. Don't touch that dial. Be right back. Are you looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you'll want to dine at Terramia's. This North End Italian restaurant provides a simply divine culinary experience and, as quoted in Zagat's restaurant guide, pastas without compare. And it's reasonably priced. This North End gem will keep you coming back. Terramia is simply the best Italian restaurant in all of Boston. Call 617-523-3112, 617-523-3112, or terramiarestaurante.com. 
The new Cobblestone AM, Cobblestone Cafe offers burgers, barbecue, salads, fries, milkshakes, seafood, and the very popular Snickerdoodle iced coffee. Delivery and catering are also available. Cobblestone Cafe, 227 Hanover Street in Boston. For more information, call 857-263-8057 or visit them online at cobblestonecafene.com. Located in Boston's North End holds one of our best-kept secrets, Antico Forno, ranked number nine of the top ten Italian restaurants around the world within the category of being one of the most authentic. With a welcoming family feel, it's hard to argue the experience you have when enjoying dinner at Antico Forno. Best known for their brick oven pizza, their world-class traditional cuisine does not fall far behind. Come enjoy dinner at Antico Forno and feel like part of the family. Open daily from 11.30 a.m. until 10 p.m. Call us today at 617 6733 or visit us at anticofornoboston.com Let's go girls All right, we are back and you're listening to Talk with Francesca. Welcome back, Pam. Thank you. Pam is the author of Lie Spotting of which we are discussing. So, Pam Facebook uh, I'd love to chat a little bit about that, just because, you know, everyone's talking about their great life and everything. You know, everything's just wonderful. What I want to know, do people lie about their lives on Facebook? I mean, do they? Do... <laughs> I think if you're having a bad day, that's like the last place to go is Facebook. <laughs> well, you know, part of what what separates, I think, an older generation from the upcoming generation is our attachment to our identity. So, for example, we have one identity. You know, I'm Pamela Meyer. You know, I live in Washington, D.C. I'm married to Fred Kemp. I have one daughter. You know, I have a, a very clear sense of who I am, my identity. Kids that are growing up, they have fractured identity. They have an identity on Facebook. They have an identity on Tinder. They have an identity on a gaming site. They've got their financial identity. Um, they have their LinkedIn at work. They have many, many different identities, and they're less attached to each one of them. And because of that, they may be more willing to exaggerate in certain ways that we are less likely to exaggerate. We don't have science on this, but that is my assumption from the kind of on-the-ground research and the number of interviews that I've done. That's sad. And so it's, a diff- it's different. Hmm. Um, we do know that men and women lie in very different ways. Oh, so, for really? example, we know that men will lie more about their image. They'll boost themselves up in the image of others, whereas women lie more to protect other people and to avoid conflict. And so you might see bolstering lies more from men on Facebook. You know, oh, yeah, I managed 400 people at that company. Well, in fact, maybe they only managed 40, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) Whereas women might lie. They might say, you know, so-and-so never said that. How dare you say that? That's that's more of a protective lie. We lie for very, very different reasons. and sometimes we lie to gain an advantage over another person or to create a very positive impression or to obtain a reward that may not be easily attainable. But sometimes we just lie to avoid being punished in a defensive way or to get out of an awkward situation or to maintain our privacy. And so we lie for different reasons. I think on Facebook it's complicated because on the one hand, the anonymity of it and the fact that we're sitting at our computers and can edit photos and edit GIFs and give ourselves digital facelifts and all of that allow us to be more deceptive. But on the other hand, it's a transparent world, and you will be called out for it. Mm. So it's complex. 
Pam, what do you mean when you say that lying is the bridge between reality and our fantasies, between who we are and who we want to be? I read well, that, and I was like, hmm, what does that mean? If you think about the psychology of lying, what it's about for each and every one of us, and this travels across cultures, we all kind of wish we were better husbands, better wives, richer, taller, more powerful, more strategic, better golfers, better cooks. You know, the, the list just goes on. And we have those wishes. And lying often at its core is an attempt to bridge that gap, to kind of connect our wishes and our fantasies about who we wish we were and how we wish our world could be with what it's actually like. And oftentimes you can understand, when, as opposed to just pointing the finger at somebody and saying, liar, liar, house on fire, if you start to understand what it is they lie about and choose to lie about and what that pattern is about, you will actually start to understand much more deeply what they yearn for and need. And when you get below the surface and you actually look at someone and see them innocently, you don't necessarily just point the finger and say they're lying, but say, huh, there's something they need, there's something they want. How can I address this? Coming from a curiosity. Correct. It becomes much, much more interesting. Much, much more interesting than just, huh, that person's lying. Wow, isn't that amazing? That's another whopper. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, you say that it's a cooperative act and you can only be lied to if you agree to it. I mean, so, but how would you avoid being lied to? The best way to avoid being lied to is, first of all, to make sure you've really cultivated your small garden of good friends and close associates. I don't believe we need 500 friends. I think we need as many as we have on our hand. You know, five, five fingers on your hand, five good friends. Really have a, a tight-knit group that is really your circle of trust. That is a very safe and very happy way to go through life. Absolutely. So that's the first thing is to think carefully. And I'm not saying you should end friendships or, you know, start ghosting your previous friends or anything like that. I'm just saying think closely about who you choose to trust and make those choices based on what brings you a lot of joy and a lot of happiness and the true feeling of safety and, and comfort. Because instinctively we know who should be in our circle of trust, and I think that is the first thing you need to do. Beyond that, then if you, if you get into trouble, you should not keep it quiet. You should talk to one of those people about it and let them help you with it and start to ask the harder questions. And do not become passive-aggressive yourself. Have that difficult conversation during a difficult time with that difficult person. Sit down with them in a very calm way and connect with them and say, look, here's an issue. We need to work this out. I don't think what's happened is quite the way you've described it. Let's talk about it. And if you're really committed to even those people that you distrust, putting them on the same level as you and having an open-ended conversation, you usually get to the truth and you usually learn something that you didn't ordinarily think you would learn. Well, there's also perception. I mean, people have different perceptions of things. Exactly. And, and biases. And, you know, I mean, we haven't talked about that at all, but so where do you draw the line between perception and lying or, or bias? I mean, any of those. They, well, bias know, a, is very complicated. We talk about course. bias a lot when we do training because the biggest issue with bias is that, you know, it's someone comes in the walks into your office or calls you up for a date or or you're working with a colleague, and they're smiling, they're glib, they're warm. They have what we call social proximity. They feel like somebody you went to college with, same religion, same race, somebody you might have gone to high school with. You have social proximity to them. <laughs> and you're tired, it's four in the afternoon, you haven't had your latte. You may convey an overly positive 
bias on them. And then likewise, someone walks in and they're scowling and they're unattractive and they have low social proximity to you from a different country. They speak with a different accent. They feel different from you and you're tired. You may convey an unnecessarily negative bias on them. And you don't want to do either. You don't want to do false bias either way, not, neither positive nor negative. You want to try to view the person across the table from you as they are. And so you have to be very, very aware, particularly of those issues around social proximity. What about eye contact? There are a lot of myths around eye contact. We think that an honest person will look you in the eyes and a liar won't. But most of us, when we're being honest, only, at least in America, only look somebody in the eyes about 60% of the time. And when we travel, when you go across the globe to Asia, that number drops in half. Why in is Asian that? Societies. It's a different cultural milieu altogether. So they do not look you in the eyes as much. Well, it's, it's a very intimate thing. It is. Looking someone in the eyes is a very, very intimate thing, and oftentimes what you see is people overcompensate. Right. Liars oftentimes look you in the eyes too much because they think you're expecting them to look you in the eyes. And in fact, what they're doing is giving themselves away if you're well-trained. Exactly. Why do you think leaders lie? I mean, we, we obviously know they do. Um, why, why so much? Well, you know, we I mean, know is there any from benefit studies, ever to lying? <laughs> we know from studies that powerful people lie more than people who are not powerful, and extroverts lie more than introverts. And we often know that there are, you know, a, a narcissistic leader who starts to believe their own lies in certain ways or may, may really need to steer a conversation in a direction that is different from those asking him or her the top questions they want to get answers to. So there's a myriad, a variety of reasons why somebody lies. I don't think you can necessarily make a generalization about leaders in general, but they are in a position to... Maybe uh, politicians. <laughs> well, we, have, we certainly have a situation today where it's kind of a liar-liar election. You know, exactly. Both parties pointing the finger at each other, and it's it's very easy to point the finger at another person and say you're a liar. It garners a huge amount of attention. Mm-hmm. And I, I personally feel that it's up to the media to right. be holding right. all of our politicians' feet to the fire and to be asking much harder questions and to going way beyond mm-hmm. just covering the election, but to actually uh, provide some interpretive filter for us so that we are not always there having to research and say, wait a minute, I don't think that's true. Let me back that up. Right. What about gestures? So gestures can mean nothing, or they can be um, a sign of lying. It really depends. If someone is always gesturing and you ask them a question, they start gesturing, it doesn't really mean anything. Although, you know, clenched fists, using the OK sign, emblems, as Paul Ekman, one of the great researchers, called them, sometimes are associated with deception. When you ask somebody a question, that's how they express that leakage sometimes. You know, um, strangers lie three times within the first 10 minutes of a meeting. Um, but then again, you say married couples lie to each other once in every 10 interactions. And that's a lot of lying. So I was very curious about the married couples and wondering what, what that was about. Well, you know, Other than, of course, if you're, if you're uh, unmarried, you're going to lie more. If you're living with someone you're unmarried, you're going to lie more um, than married couples. But the interesting piece of that is that it's really you have to be careful with the science because 
though the frequency may be lower for married couples, we really save the whoppers for each other. <laughs> so you have a very high volume, you know, high volume liar who's living with somebody, but the lies are not significant. And then you've got a couple who are married and they lie once in a while, but those lies are very, very significant for their relationship. Michael, what kind are you talking about? I mean, I'm not talking about cheating and that kind of stuff, but, you know, what kind of whopper lies? Any, any lie that will punctuate an important decision you need to make, whether it's by, by commission or omission, mm-hmm. is significant. And so we consider those high-stakes lies. Um, you know, what you're doing with your time, what you're doing with your money, what you're doing romantically. Um, you know, lies like what house to buy, what mate to have, who to vote for, um, what company to do business with, what job to take, who you want as your boss, who you want as your employees. These are high-stakes decisions. If there are lies that influence that decision that you make, that's considered a significant lie. And in, in marriage, if you, you are lying to your spouse, you're really you're breaking down the relationship. You know, if you're not completely authentic, then the, you're, you're, running in, you're going to run into trouble. Well, you know, Actually, with all relationships, that's the case. It's as if the of two course. of you are in a boat, and you're floating down a river, and little lies puncture little holes in the boat. And so when the boat is leaky, that's not good for either person. Right. When the foundation is not there. Correct. Good. Or actually, you're right. So, of course, in any relationship. Yep. But when I'm just thinking, when I, I don't know, when I think about marriage, it's like such a sacred thing, and... Um, it just it just seems like it, it's it's deadly. Um, we just have time for a couple more questions. Um, I'm wondering about cheaters, um, people who t- uh, deceive themselves into thinking they're smarter than they are. You know, that sort of fake it until they make it mentality. What what do you have to say about that? Well, you know, fake it till you make it. You know, I mean, Amy Cuddy did some work in that area, really, which is more around body language, where if you actually yes. pose as a powerful person, you may have a body reaction that allows you to feel more powerful. And I think that's very, very interesting. Uh, people who believe their own stuff, who tell the same lie over and over and over again, almost sociopathically, so that they believe it, are very dangerous. And they're very hard to read. If you have a sociopathic liar, or what we call someone's a conditioned witness, and you start to ask them hard questions, they've gone through their shtick so many times, and you see this oftentimes with politicians as well, and they've said it so many times that it's actually a body memory for them. So if you're going to try to raise the, the cognitive load on that person, you can't do it unless you throw them off with a complete oddball, out-of-the-box question. So part of what we do when we're training people is we really spend a lot of time teaching them not just how to tell if someone's lying and what questions to ask and how to read their body language and how to read their statements, but how to prepare. Because the best interviewers, the best interrogators, the best people at getting to the truth walk in the door and they've already done 80% of the work and that was their preparation and their research and their strategy for how to get to the truth. Pam Meyer, author of Lie Spotting. Thank you for joining us this morning on Talk with Francesca. It's been a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Up next, Chris Gogo's expert and real wizard at profiling individuals and forecasting the future. Don't go away. Be right back.
Our pets are family. That's why I take my dog to Poochie's Dog Grooming in Saugus. I know my furry friend is going from smelling crummy to yummy because Liz and Courtney at Poochie's Dog Grooming really care. Whatever your pet's needs are, be it dematting to extra scissoring or a special bath with essential oils, they have your furry friend covered. So call Poochie's Dog Grooming today at 781-558-5816 or visit PoochieSpa.com, voted number one by their clients on Boston's A-List. If you're anything like me, your dog is no different than your child. That's why when I can't take him with me, I bring him to the Beach Dog Doggy Daycare at 96 Newburyport Turnpike in Newberry. Specializing in the care of small dogs, the small dog with the big dog attitude, there is no other daycare specializing in small dogs only. That's why I take my dog to the Beach Dog Doggy Daycare. And they offer free pickup and drop-off services to the local Newburyport area with homestyle playrooms with sofas, blankets, and rugs, and dogs grouped daily by not only their social personality, but mood of the day. Where else could I possibly take my little guy? Visit the beachdogdogdaycare.com. I have found the best kept secret on the North Shore and just in time for spring. Family owned and operated Labranti Tile and Stone. They've been in business for over 30 years and they do all their own installations. You'll work with Jay at their showroom in Peabody who will color coordinate your dream space and Gerald and Pat will handle all the expert installations. Now doing complete bathroom remodels including ripouts, tiles, vanity tops, glass doors and even mirrors. So visit them at 134 Newberry Street in Peabody or call them at 978 Zero zero or visit Labranti Tile and Stone.com. All right, we are back and you're listening to Talk with Francesca. Are you interested in knowing how past personal trends predict future ones? Want to know what the major lesson is in your life that you need to overcome? Who doesn't want to know how to tap into your motives and accept what you are? Well, then you want to stay with us because math magician Chris Gogos, owner of Alchemy, Alchemy World, excuse me, has 17 years of expertise in personality profiling and is here with us right now. Welcome, Chris, and thanks for joining us this morning on Talk with Francesca. Hi, Francesca. Thanks for having me. So first and foremost, Chris, uh, because I was absolutely ignorant to this before I spoke to you, for those of our listeners that don't know, what exactly is a math magician? Sure. There's a mathematician, then there's a mathemagician, and they're kind of the same thing. The only difference is when it's time to actually demonstrate a theorem or mathematical theorem, um, some people need to see a demonstration and some confuse it with being a trick, but it's not. It's actually simply a demonstration of of a mathematical theorem of any type. And the type that uh, I do is I use these very, I call them simple theorems, but uh, what I do is I look at a person's name and their birth date, and I subject them to some mathematical theorems, and I let them know that from the name and the birth date, I can extract some very valuable information that relates to personality temperaments or how the behavior will manifest in their personality in a variety of different aspects. And uh, it's 100% mathematical. It's not based on astrology. It's not based on 
just looking up at the sky and making up stuff on the fly. It literally is an old, ancient science. I didn't invent it. I merely, for years, have been, interestingly, I've been trying to disprove it. And I always find myself coming back full circle, validating it through the clients that I have and their responses. And uh, it, it's quite the uh, the amazing thing. And it's, it's just, I'm always... Uh, constantly surprised by the responses that the clients have because I'm waiting for one day someone to say, nope, doesn't apply to me at all, and then we get into it deeper and deeper, and lo and behold, we find out that uh, indeed there is some validity, and it actually supports a lot of things that the client themselves know to be true about their personality. What can you compare it to? Would you compare it to being a psychic? Would you compare it to being, uh, or compare it to astrology? Is there any connection there? Well, those are excellent questions. And uh, uh, on one level, it is kind of like uh, being a behavioral analyst, Uh, somebody that is really steeped well and well-versed in what I would call classical temperament theory. Uh, there's more akin to that. The astrologers, yes, there's something there, but even if I didn't have uh, a birth date, for example, and all I had was a name to go on, mm-hmm. um, I could still pull out the personality temperaments that would influence the person about 80% of their personality, whereas an astrologer, if they didn't have a birth date, they're guessing. Right. right? But, but how... Okay, and I know you're not going to give us, you know, dig into your bag of tricks there and tell us exactly, <laughs> but no pun, in, no pun intended. Um, but but okay. what? But but give us some idea of how you can simply take a name and profile someone, sure. okay. a name and a date of birth. I mean, a date of birth. See, for me, when I hear her date of birth, I went ah, okay, because. Um, a little secret about myself that maybe some of our listeners don't know. Um, I've mentioned it before on the air, but I really um, believe in astrology a great deal. And um, and not that I can necessarily pinpoint an astrological sign of someone, but I can certainly, but, I, but I'm not completely off base all the time either. Okay. I, I definitely, you know, I think there are certainly personality traits uh, with, like, say, Taurus, and that are very different than personality traits of Aries, uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, obviously, there are 12 of them. But so when I hear, when I heard date of birth, I'm like, ah, okay. So then, you know, you can glean that this person was born in May and they're a Taurus, so therefore they have X, Y, and Z personality traits. But but you're saying you could do it with the name alone. Is that That's right? correct. Okay. That's correct. Now, just to touch on the uh, uh, the background a bit, um, like astrology, like in in ancient times, actually before Isaac Newton's time, just to give you some perspective on what, I, what I've researched and found myself, and I'll make my point about uh, what I do, uh, astrology and astronomy were one discipline way back. And it was uh, more about counting the placement of the stars at any given time and making a note of that. And at the same time as those metrics were being done by the you know, people down here, like I guess the priests of way back that were in charge of that job, 
job in the village or the community. And believe me, there were people that that's all they did their entire life and they had to do it well or you didn't get the job. So they had to know the exact map or uh, constellations in the, in the sky, for starters. Now, there were other people that were paying attention to what was actually happening on the ground in the community, in the country, in the village, and somehow, somewhere, they got together and they merged these two data uh, modules, and then they started seeing patterns repeating themselves. And this is how I think the original um, astrology, as we call it today, came from, mm -hmm. okay? Because somebody way back was keeping track of, of everything that was going on, and they saw these repeated similar patterns reoccurring. So it wasn't a stretch of the imagination or fantastic make-believe stuff for when the priests in the village saw a particular uh, celestial combination coming by again, because it's all predictable. They made a supposition, kind of like a forecaster mm -hmm. or an economist, saying, geez, the last uh, 5,800 times that our forefathers saw this pattern, this is what happened. So maybe on the you know, uh, next round, there's a 90% probability the same kind of stuff's going to happen. Now, how does that relate to what I do? Well, it's kind of the same thing, but it relates to names as well as the birth dates. I've found out in my research that in every culture, regardless of language, regardless of what alphabet was used, I've discovered, and I would love for somebody to push back and tell me I'm wrong from their own research, but what I found out is that the letters, uh, consonants, vowels, uh, sounds um, in a language have some bearing. It sounds weird to say it this way, but they have some bearing on physical matter and and how that shapes things and if you want an example yes please you could you could actually uh create a, uh, an artificial tone with some device and you could have some um, sand in in a little pan or something like that and you'll see the sound actually affecting the patterns of those granules of sand and this is a scientific test that uh, uh, you can do and you'll see that well the old uh, science will tell you that names and the way the vowels and the consonants are structured in a name, what you are called, what we are all called, even if we did not choose or select our names, because obviously we were babies, right? right? So our parents and our maybe our aunt or uncle, whoever, gave us a name and it stuck, and that's the name we wore for the rest of our days. <laughs> uh, and those identifiers were us, like it or not. Well. There's been a whole body of knowledge, and it started from where I picked it up with the ancient Babylonians, then it went to the Greeks, uh, oh, the, the Egyptians, and then the Romans, and it just kind of got lost in, I guess, everyday society after that, then it was not uh, taught anymore. But the information is out there for anybody that wants to go and investigate it themselves. So there is a science to it, but only through repeated practice do you see the results and the validations so the scientific method has to be employed where you yourself have to become a kind of like the scientist or the technician doing the testing yourself like i've been doing where i essentially uh, analyze uh, many different names over the years and birth dates and i feed that information back to the clients and it's their responses that matter, not mine. I'm just like the mechanic right. that's doing the diagnostic, passing the info on to the end user, and having the end users 
report back to me saying, wow, okay, this makes a lot of sense. And usually it takes uh, months, if not a couple of years, for people to really register with the information. And I always have clients like way, back, like way later mm-hmm. calling me and thanking me. It's, it's quite odd, but, uh, but that, that's what works. So Chris, what exactly is a profile? Well, what it does, it covers off uh, 10 categories. Uh, Actually, there's more, but the 10 are the major ones I look at. The four core ones that I start off with are motivations of the individual. Uh, The second one is the public image of the individual. The third one is the actions and deeds category, which is the most potent one because that's the one we're all going to be judged by. Uh, really at the end of the day is the actions and deeds, the things we actually do uh, and that are manifest out in the world, Uh, not by just what we want to do or what others expect us to do, but what we actually wind up doing, because those are three different things. Mm -hmm. And the fourth core part of a personality profile is, I call it uh, professional purpose, because I believe all of us have a very special gift we have to give to the world. We might not know what it is when we're a teenager or in our 20s, but by the time we're in full maturity, we definitely discover what that is. And that's really when I feel like I'm really being of service to people, when I help people discover what that is. They actually discover it. I just kind of give them a bunch of clues along Mm -hmm. the way. You know, so the, there's four core temperaments in, in a personality profile to answer your question. So how can you help someone identify, for example, the major lesson that they're here to overcome sure. with, with doing well, this profile? Or profile? Fair enough. Excellent uh, uh, question. And that is, um, I call it the emerging vocational inclinations. That's a fancy way of, of saying What do you want to be when you grow purpose. up? <laughs> yeah, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, yeah. and uh, uh, a lot of people, what happens is they, they find themselves in recurring patterns professionally, but they don't know what their major strength is. And I always uh, ask people whether I do a profile or not, I want them to look at back in their own life and I want them to uh, answer for themselves, what is it that is the secret ingredient to your success at any job you've ever had? And only they can answer that. And if they are really honest with themselves, they'll tell you. And I give them some parameters. And there's a narrow band or a spectrum of experiences that people either do really well at with little or no training, or they're just not good at it at all. I'll give you an example. Um, let's say, for, for instance, uh, someone's really good at organizing, like low-level fundamental organizing. You can put them in any job, give them any title you want. You can pay them whatever amount of money. And these people, when you compare them to the team of the other people they work with, they seem to be the people that are the absolute best at organizing everything. Right? Send them my well, way. Guess, <laughs> well, no, I'm just send them your way. Okay, that's just one example. There's other people that are analytical types. They're very quiet. They don't yep. talk much. Um, they don't volunteer any information. But when there's a really super mission-critical problem and everyone just doesn't know what to do, this person usually emerges out of the quiet shadows in a meeting and says, um, well, you know what, we could just do A, B, and C, and it could be fixed in 10 minutes. And everyone looks at them kind of stunned, you know, mm-hmm. and says, really? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've done it before. And they all go, well, 
why didn't you tell us before? And then they come back and say, well, nobody ever asked me because they're shy people, right? <laughs> and so what I do is I help people understand that your, uh, the importance of a vocation is in a major lesson. It's kind of the same thing. Right. And you have to know what that is because that's where you're going to get the money, the recognition uh, by your peers and your bosses. You don't think sh- that shareholders or bosses want the right person for the right job? Of course they do. Right. And it's not even a money thing at that point, because for them, they just want the operation to succeed consistently day to day. They're not interested in the politics or all that hand-holding business, right, or being nice about Mm -hmm. this. They just want right person, right job. So how do you help them find that? I work with them to help them see the temperaments that they've already acknowledged within themselves that they're already good at and they can demonstrate it even if it's on a small level they have to sell themselves for instance that they're a good organizer and when they compare themselves to all their friends or colleagues they honestly have to say you know what i am really good at organizing and everybody else that i've ever compared myself to i'm actually the best so they have to be uh, confident from the inside out to know that organizing is one of their assets. Uh, and that's and, a whole other world, being confident in your abilities, isn't it? Well, but see, exactly. But that's part of my job, is to show people that you're going to fall into one of uh, two camps with your personality. Actually, there's three, but I'm only going to focus on, on two. You're, it's either an asset or a liability. It's either uh, contributing to the quality of your life, or it's in the reverse. It's taking away. It's like money going into your bank account versus stuff going out, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, Chris, you don't just do profiling, though, as well. You do uh, sort of a, a kind of a coaching, and, and you have a membership to your, um, yes, right? I have two, yes, I have two things. I have a, uh, an executive-level membership, um, and that's where I do the custom work. That's where I literally look at the name and the birth date, and I do what I call an old-fashioned profile, mm-hmm. um, all mathematical-based. I send a report out to the client, and I follow up with them over the year uh, at least four times. I almost uh, badger them because I want to make sure that they have gone through the content at least twice, mm-hmm. and I keep following up until they finally admit, yes, I haven't read it or I have read it, and I've gone through it, and i got some questions. Because that's part of my my thing. I have to make sure that they get the info and retain it. Um, And there's only so many of those types of clients over the year that I can service effectively. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a custom thing, right? Right. But then I have my other product, which is my weekly audio cast. um, And it's essentially a forecast going into next week. It's like looking seven days ahead and giving people information on kind of like a behavior weather forecast. It sounds kind of weird the way I'm saying it, but look, we all have a life outside of work or outside of our own mind. We interact with people, and a lot of times there's personality clashes with family members or good friends or neighbors or just people at work, and the audio cast, which is also a a membership, um, you get information from a detached objective outsider, which I am, Mm -hmm. and I give you this information kind of like in a rapid fire way day by day and I give you a snapshot of the day it's kind of like a soap opera right and whenever you're in doubt as weird as this sounds whenever you're in doubt or uh, lost for a strategy on how to cope with something 
just go to the slot for Tuesday and you know listen to that and you'll get a kick and a charge out of it because the way I present information in an unbiased manner is I'm literally trying to show people that there's different themes like a weather forecast for each day and each week moving forward and if you can understand the the flavor of the day or the week like the weather, you can dress appropriately for the weather and work with the elements so they don't harm you or trip you up. And that's what the purpose of the, the audio cast is on a week-to-week basis. Chris, we, we just have a couple minutes left, but what I would love to you to tell our audience is how you got into this. I mean, what, what is it about this that, that got you so excited that, that you, but, that you okay. are, are doing this? Because it's really fascinating work. Well, you know what was weird is I was a pretty average student in high school, but there was this one teacher. uh, He kind of knew me and, you know, the kind of other friends I hung out with, and they were kind of like techie people and mechanical people and science people and some artsy people. And he came up to me and he said, Chris, here's some books. I want you to read them. And I said, okay. You know, I was, what, 16, 17? Mm -hmm. And uh, they were all about metaphysics and ancient science and ancient history and and at first I thought, you know, who is this dude? And like, you know, has he been talking to my sister or something? Like, you know, because my sister was always trying to push weird topics to say, you got to learn more than just this, that, and the other thing. So this one teacher in high school was very instrumental. And I got to tell you, I was not expecting to be uh, taken by these subjects. And so really when I was about 16, 17, I did so much research about ancient history. It, it was incredible. And it was all self-taught. Um, and there was always an interest in helping elevate the human condition because something happened years ago when I, I guess, was learning about a species being extinct, and that really hit home, and I thought, wait a minute, so human beings could become extinct if we don't evolve, and I remember that made a real impression on me because <laughs> I thought, so who are these people that contributed to the evolution of humanity? And it was just a bunch of normal people doing different things, right? People that invented this, yeah. invented that. Yeah. And then I started thinking and contributing, thinking, you know what? Well, I've got to do my part to contribute to the evolution of the human uh, species because I'm one of them, and I certainly don't want us to be extinct. So you found I... your purpose, Chris. <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, <laughs> All I right. Did. Math magician Chris Gogos, owner of Alchemy World, thank you so much for being with us this morning on Talk with Francesca. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you kindly. Take care. Okay. All right. It's time to wrap things up. We've got to say goodbye. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. See you next week. Same time, same place. Make it a great week. New England winters can wreak havoc on our vehicles. Sometimes it's just not enough to wash and vacuum them. Sometimes a full detail is in order. Do you remember the last time your car or truck was in that pristine condition? Remember how you felt? It's time to get that feeling back again. A full detailing from Tony's Recon can get you back in the driver's seat. Call Tony at 978-590-3693 or visit Tony'sRecon.com. You'll be glad you did. Tides is beachside dining all year round. Directly on Nahant Beach, the ocean views from the dining room and the pub can't be beat no matter what the season. Whether you choose our dining room, a frosty find at our bar, or our sun-drenched deck on Nahant Beach, we guarantee you great atmosphere with superfood and service. 
Our menu is full of fresh, high-quality seafood, prime rib, chicken, pasta, and pizza that everyone will love. Check out our drink menu for fun cocktails, 30 ice-cold beers on tap, and our well-rounded wine list with our state-of-the-art tap wines. Tides is the place to watch any big game, too. We have over 20 HD TVs. At Tides, we specialize in casual dining with food that's just delicious, not pretentious. Tides is a fantastic restaurant anytime, summer or winter, lunch or dinner, rain or shine. Visit TidesNahant.com today. Looking for a unique gift for a special occasion or a fabulous piece of sterling silver jewelry? Sunburst Trading in Raleigh has you covered. With jewelry and baubles from all over the world, Sunburst Trading knows what you want. Located at 160 Newburyport Turnpike, you'll want to make sure you stop by today and get a little taste of awesome or visit their online store at sunbursttrading.com. Sunburst Trading is the one-stop shop for all your needs. Visit them on Route 